Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you with us for episode 71. Um, we have been trying to get started for quite a few minutes now, and the struggle is very <laughs> real. So please, please bear with us. If we manage to say anything at all today, we're going to be very, very excited. Um, we are going to be talking yeah. about some pretty interesting stuff. But before we want to get into that, we want to cover a couple of... Uh, couple of procedural things. First, in honor of Dan not knowing who Dulé Hill is, I'm wearing one of my Christmas presents, which is a shirt that says, did you hear about Pluto down here? That's messed up. So uh, if you get that reference, then uh, three brownie points to you. This is Gus's pickup line. It's, it's beautiful. Speaking of speaking of Psych the TV show, one of our use, our listeners has graciously pointed out that we have been pronouncing uh, Brett Weinstein instead of Weinstein. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> no, honestly, that is that that's our bad. Um, if you've been listening to us for a while, I, for one, am always impressed when we're able to pronounce anything correctly. <laughs> um, but the number of times we've mentioned his name, we should have pronounced that correctly. I What's think our is, best I think solution. We've shifted it over time. I think we I initially th were saying it Weinstein. That we probably were. I think our best solution is we're just going to refer to them as Brett and Heather, since we struggle with both of their last names, and and that should solve most of our problems. Because <laughs> Brett, I can handle. I can say Brett pretty darn well. Never had an issue with that. Anything beyond that, and it's and it's toast. So. <laughs> uh, we also mispronounced. Uh, I not mispronounced. I called Richard Dawkins Charles Dawkins. In my defense, everybody's named Charles at this point. Like I, <laughs> I taught defense. I I taught a lecture in which I called a guy Charles whose first name wasn't Charles. Uh, Charles, for whatever reason, is my go-to first your go -to? name. I don't know how that happened. I don't actually know a single person by the name of Charles. I think everyone should have a go-to first name. <laughs> <laughs> just just ready to use. Usually I refer to people as Bucket. I don't even know if that's even a name, but probably probably a little more derogatory than Charles, but <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> what do you do? I don't know. I just I want you to you know do, that's for sure. that having reviewed these names and looking to our future, we promise nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I can honor that promise. I can honor that promise. <laughs> there are going to be no guarantees, so if this really bothers you... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, before before we lose the rest of you, I'm going to tell you what we're <laughs> going to be talking about today, because it's not just names. So we want to talk about um, a couple of things that are closely related. We want to talk about transgender issues and parental rights. And the uh, the segue into this is uh, is Abigail Schreier, who has written a book called Irreversible Damage. The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, which was came out in 2020. So it came out last year. And when it came out last year, she she did the rounds on a lot of podcasts. You know, she was on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, among others. Um, I haven't listened to the Joe Rogan one. I listened to the Jordan Peterson one, you know, around the time that it came out, you know, a year ago. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very good. And and quite recently she uh she read a speech that she gave or tried to give at a at a college ended up giving it off campus to a few students and she read that speech on uh honestly with Barry Weiss which was amazing it wasn't even about her book it wasn't about um transgender issues it was it was specifically about speaking out 
and um in a in an age where you really yeah. can't which yeah, was, was fascinating you, the main topic was basically what it, what is it like to be so hated which is which was interesting the way it was really really worth mm-hmm. listening to but but anyways i mean in in this past year it's something that that dan and i have both been aware of and both been thinking about and both been considering discussing on our podcast because it is it is a relevant and important discussion to have in the in the political conversation today and it is a conversation that is being had probably not as often as it as it should be had maybe and and we're going to we're going to make our way into this discussion as gracefully as we can so so not very gracefully i guess belly flop incoming <laughs> <laughs> No, we're not like figure skaters on ice. <laughs> so one of the things that's interesting about this, uh, you could start at a lot of different points, and most people start from a, a psychological framework. You know, what is what is uh, gender dysphoria, or I mean, in, in some circles, that term itself at this point has been discarded. Um, mm-hmm. The idea is what is what is the phenomenon that's happening? How do you help these people? What works? What doesn't? What are mm-hmm. the you know the, people jump right into the practical aspect. Um, you mentioned parental rights, which is where we want to start, because or end up, or, or end up, or run into at some point, <laughs> maybe touch on here and there. The uh, the reason that we want to start with parental rights or discuss parental rights specifically is because, as far as the political question is concerned, this is the point of contact between the state trying to act well on behalf of of these children versus others who have or at authority least we over should, them. Or at least we should say this is where we believe the point of contact becomes the most important. That's fair. That's fair. That when it comes to, when it comes to trans rights, for me, it's not even, it's not even that controversial. You know what I mean? That for, mm-hmm. for, for any, any adult who, who, well, I mean, wh- whether they wish to identify as, as a different gender or as no gender, or they want to physically change their bodies to conform to whatever gender beliefs or gender identity they have, whatever it is, and, I, and obviously I'm not describing it correctly as, as they would, but all of that, that whole thing for adults, I have no issues with. You know right. what I mean? And, and right. I don't Unrelated see- to concepts of gender and sexuality and these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That there's that that's that's pretty straightforward in terms of of what role the government should play, at least according to me, which is no role, basically. <laughs> which is and, why do they need to play any role in someone going to a doctor and asking for a procedure or something? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I believe that's that's worth mentioning <laughs> that, that we're not we're not opposed to trans rights in that sense. And what, and really, where it becomes more dicey, and, and that's something that you'll see in in Abigail Schreier's book, is when you have children involved. Yeah, and rights in this case being in the in the classic sense of of uh, of we don't think anyone should stop them by force. Right? Mm-hmm. This is there's no reason to that we see to advocate for adults some kind of law preventing yeah, them. Yeah, from whether or not I personally believe. That that you pick your own gender or anything like that is irrelevant to the political discussion. My personal beliefs on transgenderism has nothing to do with it, but my my political beliefs are clear. I think that it should be absolutely allowed for adults. Right, right. So where it gets into where it gets sketchy is when we're talking about children, 
And there are a variety of points at which children become the focus of this. One of the things that tends to happen is that this, this is something that occurs at a young age or around puberty. It kind of, I, I'm not sure exactly the, you know, how, how diverse it is in terms of, of when it can occur. Most commonly, I, 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 if I understand it correctly, most commonly it occurs uh, when they're quite young, often as young as three. And uh, this, this onset of gender dysphoria, this idea that you are in the wrong body or that you are, you know, there's something wrong with you physically that you strongly dislike and kind of fixate on. And, or it can happen around puberty. And the question is, again, if, if this were something, well, the question then at that point is, is who has the authority to decide? And mm-hmm. this is where, this is where it comes into contact with, with a, with basically who is responsible for the child and how, to what degree is the child autonomous versus under the authority of some other body, whether it be the state or whether it be the parents or whether it be their schools or, or whatever it may be, you mm-hmm. know, where, what is the, the, the freedom of the child in the context of society and where, where, uh, is the authority over the child. And that's, that seems to be, because in some ways, in some ways you could analyze the, the validity of the decision, but the political question to, to a large degree is who is making the decision and by what right do they have authority to make that decision? Mm-hmm. This is, and this, this is, is where, the political theory question. And this is where Schreier's concerns come in with irreversible damage, because what she's arguing is that, is that the only politically correct belief to have right now is that only an individual knows what their true gender is, including children. So only the child knows their true gender and they have a right to do whatever, whatever they would like to, to honor that true gender and including changing, you know, changing their hormones, changing their, their physical body, as well as changing, you know, how people address them and how they're seen by society. And they have all of those rights, even as a child. And, and that it's no place for any adult, whether it's their parents or a doctor or a therapist or their school teacher to, to stop them or discourage them in any way. And so she talks about how what that's led to is what she calls, you know, affirmative care, where if there's a child who says, hey, I'm actually a boy, you know, even though I, you know, look like a girl. And I want to change that, then, you know, the therapist will refer her to the doctor and the doctor will say, okay, well, then we'll start you on these, these, these blockers and put you on these hormones. Then we'll go from there to here and here. Mm -hmm. And, and then she goes on to argue that the problem with this and her biggest problem with this is that a lot of these people who, a lot of these kids who are making that request are doing so not because they actually have what we would normally call gender dysphoria, but that they have something she calls, I think she calls it this, but the rapid onset gender dysphoria that is being triggered by a social contagion, contagion that she's actually being influenced by her peers. And I say she because she thinks that this is a phenomenon that occurs primarily among teenage girls, that teenage girls are having a social phenomenon where other teenage girls are, you know, coming out as trans and getting a lot of positive attention for it and pursuing, you know, a sex change and are doing it because of what they're seeing, that they're, it's a social contagion. They're being infected by this idea 
because they're seeing other people do it and they want to fit in and they want to be popular and they want to be liked and all of these other things that all teenagers go through. But, you know, especially teenage girls, the, the idea of a social contagion among teenage girls is at least somewhat well established. You know, there's yes. mm -hmm. there's data on things like like cutting is something that that I think she references and talks about that that it acts as a social contagion that whether or not a teenage girl is likely to cut herself, you know, on, on her wrist is more likely if she knows someone who's already cutting and it kind of passes like that. Right, right. Uh, it's been compared to a kind of a virus that goes through social groups um, so that uh, that one of the one of the clearest predictors of whether or not you're cutting is if you know other people who are cutting, mm -hmm. which is which is odd because it's not like that. It's not like depression spreads to specific friend groups, right? There's there are a lot of things that don't. Mm -hmm. Most mental don't illness does way. not correlate socially. There aren't there are no social factors that you can reduce it to. Um, you could you could look at environmental factors like isolation and things like that, which has a social component. But in terms of like who you know and your exposure to an idea, that rarely correlates with this. So this this whole thing you explained happens within an interesting context in in the social world because. What you'd say is that what we could say is that there is biologically a because we are to a degree biologically determined, uh, at least in in some areas, right? Our genes matter, our, our inheritance matters. You have a, a kind of um a, a spread of certain contagions, some of which are not contagions, but but actual inherent problems, right? genetic problems that are passed on, and some of them are are more random. They're not. They're not heritable traits, right? They're things that you that uh, you pick up through other through other ways. And there's a certain there's going to be a certain percentage of the population that experiences gender dysphoria. This just statistically, there's going to be a fairly steady number. Now, that number may be less on paper than it than what reflects the reality because of social stigmas yeah yeah that basically one way or another the numbers have been suppressed for a long time yeah. and so as soon as that social stigma disappears it makes sense that there would be a a large increase in that number not necessarily because there was actually a real increase but because more people were openly expressed yes because they're more public about it rather than mm -hmm. because there are more people who fit into that category mm -hmm. and so there has been in recent in the in the last decade i think especially there has been an increase in transgender people People who identify as as transgender and who go through these processes, and so trying to explain that one possible explanation is what we were just saying that that the social stigma is now gone, and so people are now more open to to admitting it, and so the numbers increase, mm -hmm. even though the number of people who are actually affected by it hasn't increased, hasn't changed as the argument. If this is a social contagion, then the more public it is, the more people you're going to get. And it doesn't, uh, and it doesn't affect, you know, and it's, it's not limited by the actual number of people affected by mm -hmm. an actual disorder. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm not saying that all transgender stuff is, is social, right? It's social contagion. That's not what we're saying. Gender dysphoria. Are you saying it's a disorder though? <laughs> that gender dysphoria is a disorder? Yeah. Cause you just called it a disorder. I'm just curious. Yes. Yes. Okay. Gender. Okay. Yes. And that, and there will be people who will contest that, right? That it's. That it's not kind of a that it's not a disorder, um, uh, but setting setting aside whether it's a disorder or not, 
the number of people who who experience it should be fairly static unless it's to the degree that it's divorced from social promotion, right? The degree mm-hmm. to which mm-hmm. the social factors. Yeah, it's, you're saying you're saying the stigma disappears. It should increase to a certain level and then stop. And then stop, right? And there and there should be that stopping point. And you're saying that if it's instead of social contagion, there's not necessarily a stopping point, but that it becomes more and more popular. That number will continue to grow because it's a social contagion because it it is actually being encouraged because of its popularity. And so you have people who really don't have gender dysphoria who are claiming to have it. Is that is that basically it? That's that is basically the the argument, right? That's that's that this is how you would distinguish. How do you tell if it's a social contagion versus how do you tell mm-hmm. if it's just more people coming out essentially? Um and it, it's interesting. There I've looked at a lot of numbers over the years on this with regards to uh homosexuality. But obviously that's that's even a very different thing uh than the number of of transgender people and and the two aren't related. Um, it's interesting. This is made. This point is made again and again, but it's worth stating here. You don't have to have any uh, your opinion about uh, the rights of human beings in whatever sphere, be they, you know, uh, gays and lesbians or transgender or whatever it may, or transsexual or whatever it may be. Your perspective on that doesn't have to. It doesn't determine necessarily where you fall in this argument because this, mm-hmm. because obviously, if it were a social contagion. Right, it's a fashion essentially that that is being promoted socially. Um, then that's fundamentally different than the people who are actually suffering from some kind of uh, disassociation from their own body as it is, and seeing mm-hmm. and seeing some kind of reality. Right, this is we can we separate these into two different things and say if it's a social contagion. It may or may not be good, right? And the, the mm-hmm. long term mm-hmm. consequences. If you have some kind of social contagion, you're acting on it. Um, no, that no, it leads yeah, to your you're, satisfaction you're making an, is an, an excellent point that if that if you are a trans rights activist and you find out that a large number of 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 kids who are claiming to be trans aren't and are getting sex changes, you shouldn't be in favor of that because because <laughs> that's not about trans rights at that point. Those those kids who are faking it and then getting not even faking it, faking it is. Is not quite the right term because it's different than that. You know what I mean? Right, right. They, it's, I mean, it's children and teenagers are not the same as adults. I think, I think we're all aware of that fact. I mean, teenagers especially already have a reputation for making very terrible decisions <laughs> and believing that they're the right decision. Do you know what I mean? Teenagers, right. you know, so you can have teenagers who believe that they have you know, gender dysphoria and that they really are the wrong gender sincerely, but be completely wrong. And that's what she's arguing. And if that's the case, it's not really what she's arguing. It's not really about trans rights, but it's about a bunch of kids who are suffering needlessly. Yes. Yes. And and you could distinguish between these two groups, right? You could say one group needs to be treated one way. And the group that is has been persuaded in the into this as a way to increase their popularity or as a solution to other problems that are actually unrelated or as mm-hmm. whatever whatever it may be that that leaves them susceptible to this social contagion mm-hmm. that this group should be treated differently right they should mm-hmm. they should not be treated as if they're trans um all of this is complicated by the fact that that gender dysphoria in general 
tends to disappear. In the, in the vast majority of cases, as high as 80%, I was looking at studies on this, the numbers, the numbers vary and it's hard to track people in any way. But as, as much as 80% of the, of the people who experience gender dysphoria simply grow out of it, right? it goes away, mm-hmm. goes away. Which again gives you a <laughs> gives you some reason to th- to wonder you know what what causes it and and to be suspicious of acting on it prematurely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned teenagers. Teenagers are the most susceptible to social contagions, and this should be no surprise in that it's specifically teenage girls um, for various reasons. Uh, there, <laughs> we could get a lot into the psychology of this, but but as a phenomenon, these things uh, adults aren't often cutting. Men aren't often cutting. It's almost, it's, it's usually, I don't know what the percentage actually is, but the, the majority and probably the vast majority are female and they're young. They're generally yeah, teenagers. teenage girls. <laughs> and there's a reason for this. I, I, I know people who, who I, I laugh at, it's, it's quite sad, who deal with very troubled teenagers and, uh, and have talked to them about the differences of various things. It's, it's, it's its own world uh, in terms of how dysfunctional people can be right at the extremes. Um, so where does that leave us? Uh, go ahead. Well, it leaves us in an interesting place because, because let's say that you're a trans rights activist and you're, and you're actually just here for the data. You're here for solutions for people, right? Mm-hmm. And and you go and you look at irreversible damage and you look at the the investigation that she's done and you conduct your own investigation and you find that she's right. Then your reasonable response would be, okay, we need to make sure that before any kind of sex change is taking place for children, that they actually have legitimate gender dysphoria. And it's not just a social contagion. And so let's put in place solutions, as you were saying, to have two separate groups. You know, those who, mm-hmm. who have a legitimate need for a sex change and those who don't. And those it's who assuming, do, yeah. And those who do, we can proceed, and those we don't, we won't. And so what that would involve is things like changing affirmative care, you know, from therapists to parents to teachers to doctors to say, hold on, let's look at it. And maybe there's some tests we can do and some questions and a little bit more work with these kids to find out what's actually going on. Right. right? And it's all of this that could take place. And I think something that, that Abigail Schreier would be very happy about and none of which are things that I'm opposed to, but that's not really what we want to talk about here because, because that doesn't fully address all of the problems because well, it, it addresses some of the problems, but it doesn't address all of the problems. And all of the problems here include the fact that you have situations where, especially here with this gender dysphoria, where the therapists, where the doctors, where the school teachers step in and take charge over what the child is and isn't going to do in terms of, of you know, a sex change or hormone blockers or even how they how they view themselves. And and that's where it gets into the question of parental rights because historically all of these decisions were decided by the parents. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What what the child did in every respect was decided by the parents. And and as time has gone on that has shifted, but it hasn't shifted a lot. Today in terms of children, parents decide the vast majority of things for their children. 
parents control 95% of their children's lives. I mean, even with schools, parents can pull their kids out of school voluntarily. They don't have to defend their reasoning and put them in a different school or even homeschool them. You know what I mean? In the United in States, it is a perfectly, in, <laughs> in most places, that is a perfectly legal thing to do. In some states, there are stricter requirements about what that homeschooling looks like. But for the most part, you're free to take to take control in any aspect of your child's life that you would like. And obviously, there are exceptions to that where the government can intervene, but it, they're usually pretty extreme. You know what I mean? You have to, there has to be things like abuse or child neglect, and there has to be, you know, at least some evidence for that in order for the government to do that for the most part. You know, and you can argue back and forth about the CPA and, and when they shouldn't shouldn't get involved. But for the most part, parents have free reign. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this gender dysphoria is something that she talks about is there are lots of cases here where that's not the case. Where if a child wants to have to have these changes, there's little that a parent can do to stop it. And that's considered just by this new movement because the argument is is that the child decides and so if we step around the argument of a social contagion and we find a child who actually wasn't interacting with anyone who was considering you know transition wasn't influenced by others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just of their own mind decided that they wanted to be a different that they are a different gender and would like to have a sex change done then the only just thing is for that to happen and the parents shouldn't be able to stop them from doing it. And that's, a, that's obviously a big problem for a lot of parents out there, but it gets into the discussion of what is the role of parents in a child's life and what, is the, what are the principles that we should be using in deciding when a parent should decide and deciding when a child should decide and deciding when a government should intervene between those two. Yes, and this gets this gets into the principles on of this subject touch on all kinds of controversial things from uh, from child labor to various types of parental discipline and to to all of the areas of of what parents decide with their children, um, many of which are controversial. You know, from uh, ranging from even to to uh, strange religious practices or or un, infrequent religious practices where uh, a parent may not want their child to receive certain kinds of medical care, right? Some of this, mm-hmm. some of this can be simple, like based essentially anti-vaccination, and some of it can be very comprehensive and say no, no medical intervention of any kind and things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a wide spectrum here, and navigating it requires some kind of principle and some kind of understanding of what is the relationship of a child to the state, Mm-hmm. In, the, in the state's authority, what, what is the reach of the state over them versus the reach of their parent? The two, when the two come into conflict, how do you, how do you resolve this, right? How do you, which, which one ultimately has authority? And it's worth pointing out, I think, right off the bat that if you, if you decide um, that everybody is 100% under the authority of the state, every adult is, Mm-hmm. Then a child just is too, right? It's very clear. It's very clear. If you if you if you believe that society and the the interests of society, whatever they may be, always come first, then it's easy. Then it's easy. 
Yeah, the general, you just apply that same general rule to this. And of course, the children are also people, <laughs> so the state decides. Mm -hmm. If you think that there is some kind of line, some limitation on the government and some sphere of independence for a human being outside of the authority of others, outside of what they're allowed by some uh, either expert group or, or dictator or whatever form of government, you know, even, even democracy, what, what outside of what the majority decides is okay. If you think that there is some kind of sphere for human action and choice and responsibility and independence, then it's at least possible that the child, then, then we can continue this discussion. If not, <laughs> you can skip from here, I suppose. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. If you look at what, if you look at how a we interact regularly with children. I think a lot of a lot of how we behave intuitively reveals what we think of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we when we allow someone to babysit our kids, there's there's obviously some authority being transferred to that person. Mm -hmm. The parents obviously have some authority; they transfer that person. If 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 you were yeah, in a authority park, beyond what a stranger would have. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. If you're at a park and a stranger comes up and tries to treat your child like an adult would treat, you know, like a parent would treat their child, there's something wrong there. And I think everyone mm -hmm. would agree with that, that there's, there's, that there's a unique relationship between a parent and child that is, that is singular. It's mm -hmm. not like the relationship between siblings. It's not like the relationship between friends. It's not even like the relationship between a... Uh, another stranger adult and your and a child right it's, it's, well yeah i mean we've talked about you know natural principles where we draw rights and and other I political ideas from and how in you know a state of nature how adults interact with each other is one where any use of force would be unjust except in you know a protection of of your own life and and extensions of that, you know what I mean? In other words, you can't use force against someone else unless they use force against you is the simplest way of putting it, right? Mm -hmm. And and you quickly realize that doesn't work in a parent-child relationship. You know, you know, if 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 the child says, Hey, I want to go play in the street, or hey, I want to go outside in the snow and, and live out there barefoot and only, you know, and and, and et cetera, et cetera, and you as a parent use force to stop them that's called parenting you know what i mean every time i i buckle my child in the car seat even though he doesn't want to go in the car seat because he doesn't understand any of the risks that are associated with not buckling up in the car seat he doesn't understand any of those major consequences all he sees is that he doesn't want to have that restriction in his freedom and yet I must restrict him to protect him. That's what a car seat is. That's what parenting is. That's what parenting um, is, yeah. Yeah, the toddler who wants to run out of the road and can't even talk yet, right? It would be, mm -hmm. it would be silly to think – no one would argue you can't restrict that child's choices. Yeah, you can't restrict his freedom. Right. No. Yeah, it's perfectly – it's understood to be perfectly reasonable for a parent to do that even though if you look at that state of nature example between adults, there is no – yeah. There is no justification for it. There's no justification for me buckling another consenting adult into his own car saying, hey, you need to wear this seatbelt because it will protect you. You know what I mean? And if you don't, I will buckle it for you. 
you know, by use of force. I will, I will tie going, your hands down so you can't yes, unbuckle if it. if I have to, if mm-hmm. I have to. If you want to go play in the yeah. street, you know, I understand there are no cars right now, but I won't let you. I will body slam you before I let you walk into that street. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> we, we allow other adults to take risks all the time. That right. we would never let our children take even, you know, even comparable risks. Right. And it's it's worth noting that the line between being an adult and being a child is fairly arbitrary. Um <laughs> we 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 put an we put an age on it because you have to draw a line somewhere. A legal for legal purposes, a line must be drawn and an age is convenient. Yeah, and um, I, and I think and I think that could definitely be revisited. It could. I think the way the law is set up right now is is tilted in really weird ways. Good examples of this are, you know, you're 18 and, you know, or you're 17, you're not allowed to vote, you're not allowed to do, you're not treated as a legal adult, right? You have (laughs) severe limitations on your freedom up until you commit a severe crime. And then they go and they look at you and they look at what you did and how you did it. And they say, no, you're actually an adult and you're going to be tried as an adult. That's messed up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I thought and you were so, going to the military example. Because at 17, no, you, can, you can sign on to the military. That's, that's another there's, – there's, there's many There's a lot examples, of weird, right? weird places and where we bend the line. Where <laughs> when it suits the government's needs, they will treat a 17-year-old or sometimes even a 16-year-old as an adult. But there aren't a lot of avenues for a 16-year-old or 17-year-old who's mature enough to tell the, the government, actually, I'm an adult and should be allowed to do these other things. And so – it, all, I, all I'm arguing there is it should be a revolving door. You know what I mean? If if the government can has a way of satisfying that their requirement that you're actually an adult mm-hmm. at 17, you should be able to pursue that and satisfy that requirement another way. Yes, I mean, there yes. are things mm-hmm. like it, could, it needs to be able to work to your benefit as well. Yeah, as exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I do believe that there should be more fluidity that's favorable not just fluidity that's negative that can in, in how the age works because right now it's only set up where it can only hurt you and not help you which is yeah. stupid no that's an interesting point i hadn't thought about that um the uh with this conversation when we're talking about what it means to be an adult obviously it's a scale and so to have a line is odd as a mm-hmm. child grows up, they become more capable of assessing the risks, and a good parent gives a child more independence as they are mm-hmm. capable of it, right? You, mm-hmm. you want them to be to be at the edges of what they're capable of, and so that they're taking more and more responsibility for their life, so that there isn't, you know, imagine if you treated a, a human being like a toddler until they were 18 and then kicked them out of your house. And like, <laughs> this, is, this is a bad, bad parenting model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but- but despite the fact that there is there there is a separate and related issue, which is as long as you're in your parents' household, even if you were an adult who's a guest, you're going to have to abide by their rules. Mm-hmm. But that's that's unrelated to uh to the distinction between a child and adult and is entirely a, a function of uh of property rights, right? The fact yeah, that exactly. if you're gonna because use you their leave stuff, you have and to then follow resume their rules. normal life. Right. As a 13-year-old, when your dad says, as long as that you're under my house, I mean, under my roof, you can't be like, okay, well, I'm going to live under my own roof. You know <laughs> right, I mean? right. It's not that simple. Right. As a seven-year-old, there's no, you know, there is emancipation. No but for the most part, as a child, that doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. Really, what the dad is saying is, you know, no. <laughs> so the point at which external involvement 
is uncontroversially good? Is it the point where the child's life is on the line or there mm-hmm. is extreme abuse? Mm-hmm. Right? That, at that point, and, and this is to, to step back and put it more propositionally, a child has certain natural rights. In fact, they have all the natural rights of an adult, except in the realm of liberty, their, their ability <laughs> to exercise those rights and to judge how they use those rights is limited. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's at the discretion of whoever has authority over them. This is their, their legal guardian, whether that be a parent or whatever it is, right? This, this person judges the degree to which they can use their own discretion to, uh, to navigate their life. But you can't like, just because a child doesn't have the, the right to determine whether they're going to school today or not, you know, whether they're going mm-hmm. to be compelled to study or do their seatbelt does not mean that they are less of a human being and don't have all of the other rights, right? You can't, you can't go and, kick a random child on the street and be like, oh, he's not an adult. Therefore, he's basically subhuman, right? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. this is a, this is a human who, uh, who just hasn't been given independence yet, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sphere in which they're not fully in control while all the other spheres are, they're perfectly protected in. But this raises obvious questions of like, where is the line between? Yeah. Yeah, it quickly turns into a gray area because we can all agree that let's say you have a family that joins a suicidal cult and the parents are trying to, you know, are giving their kids, you know, electric Kool-Aid without their kids knowing it. That's not okay. You know, we can all agree that parents don't have the right to kill their children. I've never met anyone or heard of anyone who's argued the other side of that. Right. Right. The authority. And And then on the other hand. You know, we can all agree that parents should have some control over their children, or at least that someone needs to have some control over children, yes. that we shouldn't let toddlers just decide how they're going to live their lives. I've never heard <laughs> a coherent argument for that cause. You couldn't, and a toddler certainly couldn't make it. <laughs> as soon as he makes it, you know, I might listen. You might, the toddler that can make it may deserve yeah, exactly. that. may yes. deserve it. May, may, be, may warrant that. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting. You there, so there's obvious limits over the authority that a parent has over the child. They cannot kill them, as you said, that being the most clear. And obviously, anything that when we use the word abuse, what we're suggesting is the parent is abusing their authority. That they're that they're harming the child in a way. I guess I guess the term abuse in that context could be used. In, both both the child is being abused and the authority is being abused. Both are being. Uh, used badly. Um, the, uh, and when that happens, intervention is justified in the same way that if I, if I rob Brad, there is some violent intervention that is justified. You can come in and restrict me in some way, uh, you know, proportional to the crime and, and governed by other principles. You can come in and rightfully use violence to restrict my freedom or to control me in some way or to make me uh, repay the wrong and do what, you know, do these other things that we've discussed in other episodes. That is really hard in the relationship between a parent and a child. Mm-hmm. There are the clear examples where the parent is trying to kill a child. The parent is treating the child as if they are property that they can dispose of. Mm-hmm. The children are not property, right? They're independent yeah. human beings. They're, yeah, parents, they're parents are not owners beings. of yeah. children. They're, they're caretakers. Right. I can take, I can take anything in this room. There's no living beings in this room. I could take anything in here 
and I could break it if I felt like it, right? I could throw it against the wall. I could throw it in and, the garbage. I and could sell me it, I watching could... you do it would have no, no <laughs> just reason to intervene. Right. You'd be re- really frustrated, but I could, all I, of this I could, is... I could give you crap, but... To the degree that it. I exclusively own this stuff, uh, mm-hmm. which I do, then, or at least, I guess my family, not quite, but, <laughs> but if I did exclusively own it yeah, all, yeah. I could destroy it. That is certainly not the case with a child. You are not the owner. You are something more like a trustee or a, uh, or an, a, uh, what's the word? Yeah, I, I, a, a, used, a I used caretaker. Caretaker, trustee, um, a variety of terms that have been used. Uh, Locke used trustee, I believe. And I've, I, I, I like the analogy of a middle manager. Maybe it's because I am a middle manager. <laughs> you know, that the, you have a restaurant that's that's owned by someone and you've got the person who's managing that restaurant. The person who's managing that restaurant is going to make all the decisions about what that restaurant is and isn't going to do within certain limits. You know what I mean? That manager may 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 tell the customers they can they can see it right away or they can kick a customer out whatever they need to to make sure the restaurant is protected and also runs properly mm-hmm. and and that's going to involve controlling the restaurant right but it doesn't mean that the manager has the right to burn down that restaurant or sell that restaurant to a customer or mismanage the restaurant and if and if he does there can be repercussions but within the purview of what that manager is responsible for, and as long as he does it correctly, then he is in charge of that restaurant almost completely, as long as within that purview, even though he doesn't own it. And that's a lot like what parenting is, is that as long as you're within a certain purview, a certain range of actions and responsibilities, the parent has complete control. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they step out of those those parameters, it can become unjust and they can have, you know, and there can be need for intervention. And you can you can tell from like a state of nature, if if the state has some authority over the child, you mentioned middle manager. Some people might seem might uh, say that the government would interpret the owner. would yes that the government is ultimately and no, it's the owner. The, it's the child that the government is the owner because they actually can choose to dispose even of your life by conscripting you into war, right? That ultimately the government can do that. Should it? Is another question. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yes, and there's a difference between whether or not that's uh, that they, yes, that they can because of they happen to have the might to be able to impose that is one thing, but that they, in this case, what they would mean is they can because that is morally within their prerogative to uh, to see to it to that. And again, this is this is in a this is the kind of political view that supposes that the state is the foremost thing and everything else is subservient to it. Um, yeah, and under that system, it's very simple. How do you decide what the parental purview is? Well, the government decides. How do you decide <laughs> if, the, the, if the parents allows, have yeah. gone too strong, have gone too far? Well, it's whatever the government feels is justified. Right. If you have an absolute owner, the owner would decide. Um, that's not, in my opinion, what human beings are. That's a that's a that's a terrible abuse of of the term human being. If if you're mm-hmm. merely if subservient, we're just owned by the government, you're just owned by some other group of human beings. Mm-hmm. which happened to be in power. Anyway, so you have this uh, this unique relationship. It's not like your relationship to the government. I, I hate, I absolutely loathe analogies of the state as the father. The, and you hear it in the fatherland, motherland, right? The implication mm-hmm. is 
that this is what gave you life. It's a parent-child relationship, yeah. It's simply not the case. In the absence of the government, you can have a life. You can actually have a good life. It's not, it is not the fundamental good that some philosophers, thinking Hobbes, Rousseau, and others, make it out to be. Yeah, the causality is really important. Government didn't create us. We right. created government. You have you can have adults who don't have children, but you don't have governments without people, without, yes. you know, uh, people. Uh, right, right. And you could say that uh, the argument usually goes something like this, that yes, that's true, Brad, but because the government protects us and makes our lives possible, therefore, we ought, we ought to act like the government did come first, because in its absence, everything collapses, and you have uh, there are philosophers who've literally claimed that the worst government is better than no government. It's better than no government. Mm -hmm. Those those people should have never gone camping, apparently, <laughs> right? And compared that to what it's like to be in the gulag or something <laughs> like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like it's. A, mm -hmm. like I don't know what to tell you. Um, there are places you you can go and you can survive and you can be fine and you can actually. We've we've talked about those kids crashing on an island, right? And taking care mm. of each other. And anyway, anyway, there were a lot of interesting assumptions about human nature that people made because they hadn't seen the absence of government. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So they, yeah. And, no, and mm -hmm. you bring up the kids on the island and that's, you know, Lord of the Flies is the argument has always been made that if you let people live in anarchy, they will just kill each other or die. You know what I yeah. mean? There, there yeah. is no thriving outside of government and that's just silly. Yeah, it's it's wrong. Put it you, simply, yeah. D despite the fact that governments are, there is something akin to a government over virtually every place in the world. The absence of one does not mean total violence and and war. Um, as <laughs> Hobbes is probably my favorite one who talks about this, where he's like, <laughs> who described life as nasty, brutish, something else in short. I believe there are four in there, but <laughs> he had the, he had this just like dire view of humanity. It was like you got to have something so frightening, so powerful, the, the Leviathan that you anyway. <laughs> anyway, that that's not the case. That's not the case. The the human tendency is not to dominate as as people once suspected it was in the absence of of something stronger. But whatever the case, the and, government and Go, well, go ahead, please. I was, just, I was just thinking about this, and I thought of an interesting way of putting it, is that the evidence of that is the fact that when people are in states of, of nature, and this is going to be counterintuitive at first, is that they actually create governments. You know what I mean? That when, when people are in a state of nature, they create governments because they, they want to cohabitate together. But the fact that they can even create governments when there are none demonstrates the fact that in the state of nature, they can cooperate. You know what I mean? That's what happens time and time again when you look at, like, look at, you know, American history where they came here to the United States and were basically ungoverned. You know, the early colonies <laughs> had no intervention, especially no forceful intervention from, from Great Britain. It was just too far away and there wasn't enough money in the United States for them to care, especially early on. And so they were in states of anarchy and so what they did is they came together and they made agreements and they acted on them. And those agreements <laughs> built and evolved into more and more advanced governments. But those very, very primitive governments were formed in states of nature, which meant that you had people in states of nature who were cooperating without force. And that's 
without a government at least right they may they they no doubt if you robbed them would retaliate or do something but that's well i'm that's saying that those point. early governments that were formed it wasn't like you had 10 colonists with all the muskets who said okay you're going to be right right they didn't conquer I'm the saying others people <laughs> voluntarily worked, uh -huh. they cooperated to create this government not by use of force that's what right. i'm saying right it's a uh, which worth, is anarchy yeah since we're since we're on this topic it's worth pointing out that in the west <laughs> the wild west <laughs> um you have you have laws that are imposed and no government even in places that were so small that that there was no literally no sheriff even and the mm -hmm. laws were imposed by the fact that if you stole from someone they didn't appreciate it and they would go out of their way if you if it were bad enough to hunt you down <laughs> and they mm -hmm. and they did occasionally do that right you'd have you'd have farmers spread out over a large area and then people would come in and start stealing cattle or something. And if the, if the threat was worth it to them, right, they, they would put down what they were doing. They would gather together. They would put together a, a group of people, um, a posse, and go, go hunt down these people and take care of it, which is to say that you can actually have law and do often have law in cases where there is no government. It's just not law in the terms that we think of where it's legislated. Mm -hmm. But most of our laws, the, the, core of the laws that were governed under today were not legislated. It's the, it's the common law, and the common law is codified later after it developed in a basically an anarchic system of mm -hmm. people dealing with problems with their neighbors in local scenarios. And it's like, like it was never, it was never a legislated law. It's a law built on actual practical interactions. Yeah. And, and it is to this day the core of law in the world. Which is, which suggests something about human nature and the and the way the commonalities, even despite cultures and like anyway, anyway, it's it's really it's really fascinating, the way if you look at laws developed in that way. What am I holding? If you look at laws developed, <laughs> if you look at laws developed in that way versus <laughs> laws developed in other ways, right? And, and how practical they are and how universally agreed on they are generally. Um. Anyway. The state is story. not primary. The state is not primary. Um, and, and the state can't be primary if you believe the role of the state is to protect natural rights, right? That, that is a secondary purpose. It's mm -hmm. people first, state helps. Mm -hmm. um, state serves some purpose within, within that context. Um, so we've, we've talked about the natural rights of the child and the limitations on their rights. And we've talked about the, the limitations on the parental rights. One thing worth noting here is the practical problem of, of actually imposing punishments on the parents. Mm -hmm. You brought this to our attention when we were discussing this. Yeah, and it's something that we've, we've talked about before with, with domestic abuse, where when you have people in a household living together, it becomes difficult to intervene without causing more harm. Well, with children, that's much, it becomes much more difficult. Which I think is part of why domestic abuse is difficult is because often children are involved. And with children, it's very simple. You have some, you have a parent who is mistreating their children in some way through neglect or, you know, some, some, somewhere in that gray area, right? You know, they're not, they're not killing them. They're not maybe, they're maybe not physically abusing them or, or not on a regular basis or, or some, something in the middle here. But for sure, they're causing harm to their children. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're just really bad parents. 
And so, so you as an outsider look in and you see that and you're unhappy about that, which for the record, we've all done, right? We've all <laughs> witnessed parenting that we were yeah. uncomfortable with. Yes, parenting and, that we're uncomfortable Abuse less, but certainly parenting that we're like, they're going to mess up that kid. <laughs> no, exactly. But isn't that harm? Yes, th- isn't that's that the problem. Harm? <laughs> isn't isn't that you could you can certainly argue that yes isn't isn't that them abusing their parental responsibility? Yes, it, parenting is so hard. To, it's and that's it's no, it impossible is, not to screw up your kids. It's it really is, and so you see that, and and then when you see that, hopefully you didn't call the CPA. You know what I mean? Hopefully you didn't call Child Protective Services. On CPS, not CPA. What's CPA? Child Protective Agency. In some states, okay. I think it is actually CPA. So in some, it's CPA, some it's I, CPS. I think so. Regardless, you didn't, hopefully, when you saw that, you didn't call the government to have them ideally take away the children from their parents, right? Right. Because that's the reasonable response if they're abusing their parental responsibility is you take the children away from them and you find better caretakers. Yeah. And if, I'm not saying if it's the, the government's parents are a serious threat to the children, are a serious threat what to else the child. do you do? Mm-hmm. But when you do that, even in a more serious scenario, like let's say the parents are trying to kill their children, right? And you take the children away, there's going to be harm done to those children by losing their parents and either going into foster care or even finding good, loving parents who are willing to adopt them, whatever happens to them, there is very real harm that is done to these children. In the case of parents who are truly abusing them or trying to kill them or whatever, you can look at it and say, okay, well, this is causing harm, but it's much less harm than the yes. alternative, which is, which is you know, a practical, you know, utilitarian approach. Yeah. But in so many cases, the harm of intervening is far worse than than the harm that the parents are doing. As you said earlier, all children are 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 harmed by their parents. Any which we can all attest to because we can all remember some kind of trauma that we suffered because of of how we were raised. You know what I mean? Even the best of parents made mistakes and caused harm to their children and abused their parental responsibility in some way, whether small or large. Mm -hmm. And so finding that line becomes very, very messy about at what point intervening becomes justified. Yes. And as you mentioned, the solutions, This the problem here is that the solutions are not good. I mean, the, the obvious solution to someone assaulting someone is to have some kind of uh, recompense and perhaps uh, jail time or something. Mm-hmm. How does the parent pay back the child, like and reimburse them, like the, the, when they have when they have control over their freedom, right? What do they? You can't have them give them exchange money. Like, what's that mm-hmm. going to do for the kid if the if the parent determines all their decisions, right? You, uh, you can imagine someone, a good, <laughs> a well intentioned but silly cop, throwing it some parents in jail for abusing their children and then just forgetting about the children who then like yeah, yeah. just don't have parents for a while. And that's obviously not the solution. Um, uh, I'm sure that doesn't really happen in real life unless except for an accident, but, but uh, it becomes but it very difficult. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's very difficult to navigate this, especially since, as you were saying, there's, there's a bond between parent and child that almost always exists. It's very difficult to destroy that. So that separation is going to hurt the child, even in an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of situations where 
and this is so hard dealing with like imminent, determining whether something is an imminent threat. So you have to remove them at least temporarily and figure out what's going on. And it's all, it's all very difficult. Um, I know personally of, of several cases where, uh, where children were removed from the home wrongfully, they, mm-hmm. like they, they misinterpreted uh, injuries on a child as abuse that the child did not receive through abuse. You know, there are horror stories of hospitals doing things like a, a kid goes to the hospital for some kind of injury. They notice bruises in a certain spot that looks like someone had gripped them. They're worried that it might be abuse and they keep the children and they, they call mm-hmm. CPS. They do what's necessary. And the child simply doesn't go home with you. Mm-hmm. And that's that kind Terrifying. of thing actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, schools that uh, that have access to it, depending on which state you're in, where the school, your kid may go to school and the school may decide that there are signs that you're abusing them and they keep them. And then, and then you have to go through a process where you're trying to prove you're innocent. Which is extremely difficult and, to do. And this is and this is where it gets so messy is because you understand immediately why those laws are put in place. Because we've all heard the horror stories of these kids who are abused and because they're kids, mm-hmm. they don't speak out about it. Right. They don't they don't know to call the police or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so they they're did, they stuck in these horrible situations. And so when do we have the opportunity to intervene? Well, it's in situations like that, you know, when the hospital sees something, when the school says something, we want to make sure that above all, we protect the child. So we mm-hmm. understand why those laws are there. And yet even those laws that are pretty, pretty reasonable, you know what I mean? Seeing unusual bruising is not no evidence. You know what I mean? That's something concrete that they can point to and yes. say, this mm-hmm. is giving me- This raises red flags. Yeah, exactly. The kind of red flags that if we go back to a state of nature example- where you might consider intervening and saying, hey, hold on, what's going on here? Yes. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, in a private capacity where you'd be yes, like, Yes, as hey, an individual. Explain to me this on the kid or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you're, yeah, and you would be right to do so. You'd be right to, but, to, but it doesn't to change the fact that even in those circumstances, like as Dan's saying, that seem pretty clear cut, there are lots of times where it's going to be wrong. And even that temporary process is going to be very harmful to the children. Yeah, and the temporary process usually takes years. So temporary is relative. Yes, it's we've, relative. we've talked about <laughs> these core problems of mm-hmm. the time it takes to remove. No, and, and and that one's much worse because in that in that case, you know, because in the court case you have a in a, a suspect who may or may not have committed a crime, and if they didn't commit the crime and they spend a year in prison before they get seen, then they suffer in that year and that's suffering that that was unjustified. Uh-huh. Well, in this case, what you have is it would be the equivalent of, okay, we're going to have the trial in a year. And in that meantime, we're going to put the victim and the suspect in prison for a year, you know, in separate prisons, but they'll both be in prison right. until we get this. Right. Because that's yeah, what happens. The because, child is, because the yeah. child is suffering too. I mean, it may not be, you know, if it's, if it's abuse and they're not getting abused now, that's fantastic. And that's good. But it doesn't change the fact that they're still going to be suffering. It does. Uh, they, this, I'm thinking of a particular example of a couple who, whose I think three children were taken. And into what they were trying to do, the processes they had to go through to meet with them, where they basically had to like admit they were guilty to see their children and start taking classes on on being good, non-abusive parents and like and like the, and they're trying to their children are they're suffering, as you said, it's it's a. It is abuse to remove children from parents unjustly. 
happen. It, it, it's abusive to the children as well as to the parent, as well as your theoretical punishment for the children, for the parents being mm -hmm. on innocent mm -hmm. people. Anyway, these are very difficult uh, places to navigate. And I'm going to just state that I don't think there is a good answer to, for the same reason domestic abuse, when it's not at the extremes, isn't always, uh, you know, isn't, there isn't always a clear solution that is the best solution. These cases are similar. It's very gray in the realm of abuse and what constitutes abuse. And when, even though you are, you are justified in intervening with violence to restrict freedom or to, to change the situation in cases where someone is wrongly harming another person. In these cases, you need to be extraordinarily careful because your mm -hmm. intervention is likely to make it worse. Yeah, and I, and I think the principle that we should use in in terms of parental rights is the principle of of due caution because you have to you have to consider the fact that you are going to be causing harm. Period. If you intervene, not just to the parents but to the children, I think yeah. that would be a fantastic principle that should be used when evaluating how programs like, you know, child protective services are set up is saying, okay, what are interventions that are going to cause harm? Because anytime the children are taken away, we know for sure this is going to come cause harm because there are steps before that, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are visits and things like that, that are, that are less, less harmful. And you can discuss the different harm levels. But as soon as you start talking about taking children away, you have to say, okay, if we do that, it's the equivalent of throwing someone in prison, you know what I mean? Where we've crossed a very clear line uh -huh. and we need to have real justification before we do that. And we need to have a system set up that if they have to be taken away because there are clear signs, then okay, this is causing harm. Every day it's causing harm. So we need to resolve this immediately. As fast as possible. Immediately. Right? Not, not due process like the court procedure where it needs to be handled quickly. No, it needs to be handled right away and given yes. ultimate <laughs> priority because we are not harming the parents here. We're harming the people we know are innocent victims. Yes. And yes. so any day that we do that is causing unjust harm and we have to stop it. Yes. these it, There is not a worse process in terms of, we, we've talked about how it takes years to often for these things to go through. And in the meantime, if the person's innocent, you're harming them. There, this is this is by far the worst case scenario for that. As you said, you're harming the most innocent and the victims, and mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's terrible. It has to be done quickly, and the fact that we can't manage that is is a travesty. Is is a travesty. Literally. It really is. Um, so having fleshed out some of these lines in in, a, in some good principles, I think as, guiding as much, principles, yes, at least as, fleshing as out as, some principles is where where the yeah, line is. The next is, step is, is to get on paper and actually yeah. write out the laws according to those principles and try and make them make them good, make them wise and and uh, and expedient and all those things. Um, all of that is to say, does is to to bring it back to the initial questions, does not allowing your child to go through surgeries that have permanent effects and, and procedures that have permanent effects on their body constitute some kind of abuse or, or even, or any step along the way, right? Letting yeah, them yeah. dress the way is they it, want to. Is, or, it, is it harm done by the parents right, right. to the child? And, and this is where people are going to disagree, you know, cause they're, they're on one side, you have people who, who 
don't believe in any kind of trans rights, who would say unilaterally, of course not. And then you've got the other side who would say, if they actually, if that child is actually trans, then absolutely it's going to be harming them to have the parents not allow them to, to transition. And then you've got people all in the middle, you know, ranging from, you know, from, from where we are saying that, you know, trans rights are something that should be respected, but it doesn't mean that children should have those same trans rights right. to, to it, many others. Should it, yeah, that they, that they have, you'd say that the child doesn't have a right to these surgeries that would then trump the parental authority over them. Um, that, that ultimately it's weird to me to think of, they, they, they always put these things in terms of rights, but, but it's two different terms. Rights used in the sense of parental authority and, and your right to life and liberty is fundamentally different than rights used as things that people should do for me to, to, uh, to help me actualize my freedom and my potential as a human being. These are fundamentally different things. You can actually look, you can actually trace these words and how they were deliberately changed as a strategic mm -hmm. exercise mm -hmm. in vocabulary, right? So I, it, it sounds like we're pitting the rights of the child against the rights of the parent or the authority of the parent. We're not. We're pitting the rights and authority of the parent against a concept of abuse and what is, and the well being of the child in some sense. Um, and that's a, the, 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 these rights are not clashing. There actually is no contest of rights here per se. Mm -hmm. Unless you wanted to, I guess you could say that it's abuse because it's against the right to life of well, the child. Well, yeah. And, and so. a good example of this is because basically what it is is, is, is the argument is there's a positive right, which is the right of, self-expression really is what it is and in this case it's sexual self-expression and that translates into gay rights that translates into trans yes. rights that translates into yeah that's right into the um forced speech issues that have come up in canada where they've said hey you need to call that person whatever gender they would like because they have a right to their sexual self-expression and and the argument against that is very simple. It's that you don't have that positive right. Instead, you have what everyone else has, which is the ability as, as an individual actor. And in this case, we're talking about adults once again, because we've already established that children are different. But, for, but as adults and sometimes as children, you have the rights. You have, you have not rights, but simply agency you see, freedom yeah. whatever yeah. You, whatever you want to call yeah. it to do whatever you would like until you start harming someone else which is why when you go on social media and you say my preferred pronouns are this and that not this and that because those actually sounds like pronouns. No, i was gonna it's say confusing. that actually could be legitimate pronouns you know, my my pronouns are are you know he him or she her or, or they or whatever it is that's perfectly legitimate but as soon and, and, and t a totally reasonable thing for you to do, but as soon as you say, I'm going to use the instrument of government to force you to use my pronouns, now it's become a problem. You know, you as an individual actor choose to get a sex change, that's totally reasonable. As soon as you use the government to force, by bypassing parents, you know, forcing parents to allow their children to get a sex change, that starts getting into crazy territory. Right, right. At that point, you are running into actual rights. 
mm-hmm. that, that we can that we can name and discuss, and that and that in other contexts people agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's this whole transgender thing with children is a really really odd exception. Um, and we'll use California laws as kind of the the example of what this in practice looks like. In California, your kid can get a sex change without your permission, mm-hmm. and it will be paid for by the state. And if they go to mental care, they will be told that if they feel like a girl, that that is right, they are a girl. And if they feel like a boy or if they feel like something in between or whatever, whatever it is, they will be affirmed in what yeah, they've done. affirmative care from the And therapist. they will be in the, the therapist will lose their license if they recommend anything other than affirmation and advancing you towards whatever end goal you want. Whatever you want, yes. Which, Which is, once again, when we say what you want, we're talking about children. This the same the same kids who will would say eat candy that, for every meal if they could. Yeah, or yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean the the somewhat flippant analogy is you know if if you know a child says they're a dinosaur, parents don't believe them. But if the child says they're an opposite gender, then all of a sudden we have to give them a sex change. Yes, you know what I mean. That that where is the litmus test for what what we have all understood forever which is that children are not mature and now all of a sudden when it comes to this one issue only they know best like i honestly don't know where that comes from regardless of of abigail schreier's investigation just thinking about it at what point have we said all of a sudden that yes children are the best judges for themselves when it comes to permanent life changes and decisions, it should yeah. just be the child that decides. Yeah, and we haven't we haven't detailed this, but it's it's worth noting. If you the the transitionary things, the puberty blockers, the hormone blockers, or giving someone hormones of of another gender permanently changes their body. Yeah, yeah, just the hormones has has crazy it has permanent, permanent effects. Effects. It has temporary effects that are fleeting as it's in your system. It also has, especially in children, because children especially, are growing. Especially with puberty, because especially with puberty, puberty is yes. based off of the hormones that you have. That when you're when you're a male and you have testosterone, yeah. as you're going through puberty, it changes your body in certain ways. If you stop that testosterone and take estrogen instead and go through puberty like that, your body will physically change how it cha- the changes that take place will be different than they would have been. And the, a lot of those changes will be permanent. Yes, yes. Which is odd. If, if, there's, if there is a cost to this, and there is, because you're changing your body. Like, like, tell me one other way you can change your body in which we pretend there's no cost. It's, it's weird that people, uh, and they, in the people who know that there's a cost are often not allowed to really explain it because they're supposed to just affirm, right? They're mm-hmm. supposed to pretend there's no cost, which is silly. Um, but there's if there a is a cost, like, there is a cost to everything. And you don't get to affect the development of your body without it having long-term consequences, mm-hmm. uh, much of which you know, you're not going to like. To say nothing of the surgeries, right, which are obviously like the you're changing your version. organs um, and uh, or your, your anatomy uh, is – going to have irreversible effects it's there, there's this weird if you're under the impression that there's no that you can simply change back you're wrong you can't simply change back there are permanent developmental effects on your body that are irreversible which is which is the name of the book right this is one of the points some people don't seem to be aware that the these decisions we're allowing the children to make are going to have irreversible effects on them 
that may affect them for the rest of their life negatively. So, why are we allowing them to make the decision? Yeah, especially without any kind of discussion. You know, and that's the craziest thing about without affirmative ever, care. Yeah, the- without ever telling them the downsides, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's silly. So, it's interesting. Um, the idea that there is a social contagion going through. The check on a social contagion or any other bad decision for children is that they don't get to make the important decisions in their life, right? <laughs> right? The, the, the dumbest in our population, in some, in some sense, right? The, the, the least wise, the most unaware of costs, the most The most historically stupid. The most, the most foolish, right? Nothing is more foolish than yeah, a toddler mean, who's just run are, the world teenagers are, teenager, are Teenagers are literally infamous for having the worst decision-making skills. I mean, that's where so many problems happen is in teenage years when you're making yes. stupid decisions. Yes, based on peer groups and things. And yeah, and just ra- enraging hormones that you're then going to play yeah, with. Yeah, it's just, there's so much going on. It's nuts. Yes. So the idea is that we're going to, they're going to be checked, luckily, by the fact that they don't have freedom in the absolute sense. Yeah, they and have that's where you have freedom. parents come in. Is the parent's job is to temper that. What we've decided is in this one sphere, in some states, parents don't get to temper the choices of their children. Mm-hmm. Based on what? Like you said, I don't, I don't see why this area is unique. Let's pretend. Let, let, let's, let's assume. We'll assume the argument that gender is only knowable by the person who's experiencing it and it is wholly unrelated to your sex. Mm-hmm. Whether you're male or female at birth, this is the separation of the two, right? There's no connection. We'll assume that. And therefore, the person, only that person has access to it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think your child's opinion of it at this moment is the right opinion is that they're going to have long term? Yeah. Right? Because the, their, their opinion on who they think they want to marry or, or who yes. they want to grow up to be or even what they want to spend their time doing is often not correct. Yeah. It's something yeah. they're going to to regret and disagree with years later. Yeah, if you want to if you want to push this, if you want to push the concept of gender to the realm of of subjective truth, which is truths only known from the eye of the beholder, right? Things like mm-hmm. do you love somebody? Yeah. Your mom and dad can't answer that, right? They don't they don't know the 16-year-old Romeo and Juliet's woes and, you know, feelings. Only they could know that in the same way that they argue only they could know gender. But why would you grant them full power to make decisions regarding that choice at this time? Mm-hmm. That's the question that I don't even see discussed. Other than to say, if you don't let them do this, it will harm them. And that is such a poor argument, given that we know that most of them are actually going to grow out of this. Right? Why at this moment? Like, my kids want to do things that will hurt them <laughs> you know, that they think will make them happy subjectively all the time. And I don't let them do it. They want to eat candy. They know it will make them happy. It won't. It'll make them sick. They've had way too much today or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all the, once we jump into the, jumping into the realm of subjective truths with gender does not somehow make it clear that they should get to make these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Subjective is decisions are already a normal process where parents intervene. I think the the romantic one is a good example that as a 15-year-old, you may fall in love with another 15-year-old 
And what you really want to do is run away and get married and live with that 15-year-old right now. And that, as far as you know, it feels right and it feels like the best decision in the world. And yet your parents will still step in and say no. Mm -hmm. You know, and then they may disagree on what the no is. They may say, yeah, date them, but don't. Don't go live with them. You know what I mean? Or they may say, you know, you shouldn't date right now. Depending on the parent. Yeah, they may say you can't ever see them again. Yeah. yeah, depending on the parent, you can disagree about what the right line is. But most parents will agree that they won't let those two 15-year-olds get married and go run off and, and live their utopian dream because they know it's a bad <laughs> idea. Even if, and this is important, even if that love is real and right, like that person is the right person for them. But they need to wait a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even, even then, the parents have a right to step in and say, no, not right now. It, and that's basically what we're arguing for this, for this transition is even if you're right, even as a child, you're right that, that you don't feel like that you, are, that you are not comfortable in your own skin. You know what I mean? Even <laughs> if that feeling is legitimate and will stick around and it's not fleeting doesn't mean parents don't have a right to tell you no not right now. Yeah. We going back to your cautionary principle of 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 intervention. You need to be absolutely sure that the parents stopping them constitutes real abuse. And the bar for that, the evidence for that isn't there, especially since it, a wide percentage of the time it simply goes away. Mhm. Right? That's and, and especially if the parent happens to be in a position where they can identify this as a whim or a fashion, right? A, a, a passing fleeting thought. And to assert that as soon as the thought is present, this particular thought is present, it must be acted on affirmatively with permanent changes. Yeah. And if they have that thought, we know they're right all of a sudden. We, we know, yes. They may be wrong about every other thing they've thought today, but, to, but then they said, I'm actually a girl. And we know that's pure truth. And all of a sudden. And a permanent truth that warrants a permanent change. Mm -hmm. Is. Is crazy when you say <laughs> it like that. <laughs> It is I mean, crazy. I, how is that not crazy? It's it is crazy. I think. I, I mean, think how is how is, is that right not so different from a twenty five year old who says, "You know what? I've been thinking about it a lot for years, and I've come to this conclusion, and I've come and I've looked at my life and realized this is what I want, and this is what I what I think is right for me," and then starts going through a process. How is it yeah. not clear that that is so different that these are from two a twelve year old different. that these are two entirely different things? Right. Yeah, How is that not clear? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people have accepted a view of the world in which the subjective truths are are the only really important thing, and your self expression, as you said, they've elevated self expression to the highest value, and then they've picked various pieces, various that they types think, of self expression yes, that are going to be promoted that. Due to that, for the same reasons, certain types of things are, are fashionable, these things become the highest and they define your self-expression. I don't know why gender is, is the one fixated on here as opposed to any number of other things that express you, like your interests, which used to be the big thing, right? It's okay to mm -hmm. be a jock. It's okay to be a nerd. It's okay to be a, right? We used mm -hmm. to, this used to be the TV shows. Now it's like, yeah, yeah. it's okay to be non-binary. It's okay to mm -hmm. be. Right. We've, we've, we've turned to some other 
fashion in the realm of self-expression that we're trying to make okay, which is fine. To destigmatize it is not the problem, right? That's mm-hmm. destigmatize it, let people make decisions, uh, uh, let adults make their own decisions. Yeah, I mean, primarily what we're arguing about here is is allowing the parents to play that tempering role yeah. like they do for every other decision a child makes. Right. We're we're politically we're arguing there is no justification for intervention here on the grounds of abuse to overrule the parents. Mm-hmm. It just isn't there. Now it's possible that a parent and there are lawsuits probably that are coming, that kids who were affirmed, who then made changes that have permanent lasting impacts on their life and health, are going to go back and sue the people who affirmed it because they're looking at very real harm. Yeah, because just like you could you could do the same thing to your parent as a 12-year-old to say, if, you're, if your parents agreed to let you cut off your arm when you were 12 for no good reason... Then you could go back and see your parents saying, I was 12, say, I had no abuse. idea what yeah. I was doing, you should have stopped me. You should have stopped me. Yes, that is a legitimate argument for a kid to make looking back and sue their parents. You actually can you can make those kind of claims as, a, as an adult when you look back and you see your parents allowed something that was Some absolutely harm. unreasonable and caused mm-hmm. uh, that isn't gray, right? Yeah. And, and, it's, and I think the case that allowing it is much more of an abuse. I think there are better grounds for allowing it to constitute abuse than there are generally for for not allowing it. There, mm-hmm. The caution seems to be the the uh, caution in waiting. People people with serious gender dysphoria, it doesn't go away, right? It lasts. It it keeps coming back. It keeps bothering them. It keeps it, it it's it's a very perpetual thing. The idea that you should act on it early is foolish it's it's not going to it's, it's going cause to cause more harm than yeah. good you're going to pick up a larger segment of people that actually don't have it than you're going to help who actually do um and i'm not convinced that there's there's yet to be significant evidence that even in the cases where they have serious just gender dysphoria that treating it in this way is the right path is even right. the best solution right that changing their bodies actually is the best solution that the itself argument is made is right still up now for debate. that the only thing we can do is act right now right this second is the only reasonable path yeah and it's, it's 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 like you said it seems more and more that it's a fad more than anything else because it's so popular and disagreeing with it is is in so many ways you know social suicide you know, that even having this conversation on our podcast would immediately turn us into a fringe if we weren't already living on the fringe. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. If, it, no, if we were a big podcast, this would be dangerous. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, already, we're already so reckless that, you know, it, we'll, we'll be just fine. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but what we're saying by having this conversation is extremely controversial. And that's part of the problem. And why this fad continues is because there's nothing you can say against it without instantly being, you know, socially destroyed right the the possibility that we're wrong i'm very comfortable with the idea that we are that by expressing these things and being wrong about them is so outside of what's what should be allowed that we should be censored is ridiculous right like like we're like if we're wrong come talk to us right like we come show us where we're wrong show us how mm-hmm. you know explain to us how there actually are no long-term consequences for these things or how uh, Turns out everybody actually getting picked up in this actually does have 
gender dysphoria and that gender dysphoria ought to be treated in this manner. Things which yeah, that's we a lot don't of things you're going to have, have that, to demonstrate that. Right, to get these assumptions. And I don't know why. I don't know why if gender is so disconnected from sex that the why two are unrelated. Why fixed right now. Why then you have to change your sex? Why can't you just assert your gender and be that thing? If that thing is entirely subjective, why are you trying to make it objective? No, I mean, that alone is an excellent question, Dan. Right. Right, it's why, a, it, why does one have to match the other if they're so independent? Yeah, I if, don't know. If they're fully independent to begin with, why do they have to align later? There's no mm-hmm. – people argue that there's no connection between the two. And if there's no yeah, connection, I mean, why or, do we or read the, other the connection back into if, it? Is if there are a thousand different genders, why are we so fixated on changing you from male to female and female to male? You know what I mean? Like a lot of these things I don't understand. I legitimately don't understand. I don't get right. it. I right. don't understand, and I think part of the reason for that is because there aren't good answers for all of these questions. Yes, and and no doubt, no doubt, some group may have a more consistent view, right? Internally consistent view. We're looking at lots of different people saying lots of different things, and the, certainly yeah, the big picture but, doesn't but make the sense. Amal- the the amalgam of all those different views is the mainstream view that's being held right now. And that it's view true. Yeah. doesn't work. Right. And, but even, and we've gone into specific individual claims, the specific individual claims don't work. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's, it's weird. How, it's hard to believe that any combination of them could then be consistent. Um, they could be more consistent, but they couldn't be. Uh, and, and the crazy thing, Dan, is that even if all of these claims were backed up, it would still be, reasonable to have the parents involved in it you know what i mean and that's and that's what makes making this claim that we're making right now so easy is that what we're asking for is so reasonable we're not trying to shut down the program we're trying to temper it you know what i mean yes and yeah you could you're right you could you could say even if grant everything that they're suggesting is true it's possible that by bypassing the parent and having the child change his gender without the parent's consent and against the parent's wishes causes more harm by dividing the parent and child than this solution would fix. And there's, it, there's so many levels at which this has problems that are not being discussed mm-hmm. that, that it's hard to know where to start. <laughs> and why we've picked to focus a little bit on the on the natural yeah, rights it's side definitely, of it because- and it's definitely the more you look at it the more it's impossible to justify laws like they have in California yeah. that are so clearly yeah where this- that are totally clearly broken to favor just one outcome yeah. which is you know children transitioning yeah the schools in California will go so far as to lie to the parent while they're moving the child along and have created a new identity for them and and other things, and so it's like, yeah, it, it's it's clearly, clearly an overreach in California. But the whole thing seems to be grounded in clouds, like like subjective valuations of a child at a particular moment is a bad grounds for eternal truths that are going to make them happy throughout their life. Like which, <laughs> and how do you distinguish those from? from normal silly thoughts of child mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. it's it's uh yeah and 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 part of the reason it works is because everyone right now is so afraid of looking like they're backwards 
you yes. know, is looking yeah. like they're outdated. You're right. Yeah. And they're and they're not open to new ideas. Because if because if you're if you're anti what California is doing, you're anti-trans, which means that you are prejudiced, which means you're probably homophobic and also racist and and et cetera, et cetera. Next thing you know, you're in this outcast group that no one wants to be in. And so people tread lightly about it. You know, I mean, people say, you know, talk very carefully, you know, don't say these things because you can get in trouble. You know, I mean, that's specifically like us talking about this right now. You know, someone said to me, we'll be very careful how you talk about this. And I said, well, I'm going to try and be careful, but I will not be as careful as you want me to be because <laughs> that feeling that you're so feeling, be able to talk I about felt it. too, which is that don't talk about it at all. That's the easiest solution is just don't talk about it. Yeah. Don't, don't be in favor of it. Just don't talk about it. It'll be better for everyone. Yes. I spent exactly zero time worrying about where the lines were of what was okay to say in this conversation. Because if we, if I did that, we wouldn't be able to have the conversation really, right? We'd be dancing around. Mm-hmm. We'd be, we'd be, I'd be wor- more worried about what to, s- how to say things and how to avoid things than actually trying to think and about what this. what matters. Yeah. And about the actual issues, which yeah, is what we all children. should be mm-hmm. looking at and thinking about and talking yeah. about. Yeah. As a, as a, perhaps as a final little bit, the, the big issue is, as you were suggesting, I think just there, you nailed, you nailed the reason. If you're wondering, how could the experts, because experts will endorse the things we're arguing against, how could mm-hmm. they be so wrong? The answer is in the social pressure being applied to them. Mm-hmm. You, the, the authoritative bodies have been co-opted, even in the absence of data, to supporting these kind of things. And once, once the top moves, because of the way licensure works, most of the experts are going to get in line. Everything follows, yeah. Everything follows, yeah. Some of these, the having a single authoritative licensing body with connections, if not explicitly endorsed and set up by the government, is a bad system that's easily corrupted by things like this. Mm-hmm. Because once the top decides, the rest follow suit. If you lose your license by telling someone, Look, what you're experiencing may just pass. We should wait. That's enough mm-hmm. to get you to lose your license, and it is under a lot of a lot of boards and in, in some states. Yeah. Then, then of course they're going to conform. And why why would the groups jump on board this? It's because it's nested in a bigger story about LGBTQ rights and about oppression well, and, and about and part of how the silencing works is you either conform and you add your voice or you stay silent. So you have all of these silent dissenters Mm -hmm. whose voices aren't heard, and so it's like they don't exist. Yeah, you get the illusion of unanimity among experts. Because up Mm -hmm. until this episode, I was a silent dissenter, and so I'm not being counted amongst those who disagree. Our podcast has not, you know, has not really said anything about this, and so we were part of that group, which is a very large group that has very little power because they're not doing anything. Because they're not dissenting. Yeah, they're not yeah, vocally. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. a silent dissenter isn't worth anything. <laughs> right, right. It's potential is all it is. Um, it, it's interesting. If it weren't, I've got to believe that if if people looked at this issue independently and weren't like, uh, Abigail Schreier talks about this. When she talks to people, what they begin with is a disclaimer. I support LGBTQ rights, but my child 
is getting is going to get these treatments and things and I can't stop it and it's and it's not mm-hmm. what they think it is right this is this is not going to help them this we want to be cautionary whatever whatever it is whatever they they don't really get a say um and they don't know how to stop it without being labeled or in some cases like California being straight up run over mm-hmm. um, sometimes the pressure is social and that's what they're dealing with and sometimes it's actual government authority and that uh that disclaimer shouldn't be necessary. We can consider these issues individually. We can look at this and we can talk parental rights. We can talk government authority. We can talk about where the line is, what constitutes abuse. Then we can explore the actual details of this and say, is this abuse or do we need to wait? Is there reasons for caution? At what point do we overrule the parents, right? We can have this conversation and not be questioning or even discussing anything related to whether or not there should be gay marriage, right? Like, these things are not related. They're not. The cause, they all fly under the same flag for some reason. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great book, The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray, who, uh, who goes, talks about this at length, how actually, in some cases, their interests are, at, uh, you know, are, are opposing one another, but they're all caught up in the same political coalition. But that coalition is not a coherent philosophy. And you have to you have to keep that straight. You can't yeah. just take the propaganda of the party, which tries to take a bunch of competing interests and make it seem like one seem thing like when it's one not. Idea. When it's not, yeah. None of none of this. Your your standing as a bigot is not at stake by considering this. Now people think it is. <laughs> they think it is, but That's they're a great wrong. Way of putting it, they're wrong. This is this is not a referendum on your opinion of of progress in freeing people who've been socially and legally oppressed, right? This is, these things are not connected. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was fantastically well put. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Take care. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.